Welcome to your daily affirmations. Repeat after me, working with others is easier than ever. I strive for perfect collaboration. Our teamwork keeps getting better. Yeah, affirmations are great, but Monday.com can really get you the teamwork you desire. Work together easily and share files, updates, data, and just about anything you want all in one platform. Affirm yes to start. Or tap the banner to go to Monday.com. With lucky landslots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. Dearly beloved, we are gathered here today to... Has anyone seen the bride and groom? Sorry, sorry, we're here. We were getting lucky in the limo and we lost track of time. No, Lucky Land Casino, with cash prizes that add up quicker than a guest registry. In that case, I pronounce you lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Daily bonuses are waiting. No purchase necessary. Void were prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network, and I'd like to tell you that we have a new and improved website. It has two new features that we think you'll love. One of them is a vastly improved search engine so that when you type in keywords, you'll get a bunch of episodes really quick. The other is the ability to create a listener account. And in that listener account, you can save episodes for later listening. So you can create a kind of listening list. We think these features are neat and we think you'll enjoy them. Please visit the site today. Welcome to the New Books Network. Hello, welcome to the New Books in History podcast. I'm your host, Ari Barbalat. Today, I have the blessing of being in dialogue with Dr. Mara Yozi. She is an FWO junior postdoctoral fellow at Ghent University. Today, we will be discussing her recently published book, Rome, 16 October 1943, History, Memory, Literature, published in Cambridge, United Kingdom by Legenda, 2023. Mara, I'm overwhelmed with gratitude to have this opportunity to be with you today. Well, Ari, thank you very much for having me here. I am really excited about our conversation today. Um, so thank you. To begin, can you tell us about yourself? Can you share with, uh, with us some information about your earlier life? Are there any aspects of your formative years and of your biography that inspired the scholar you are today? Well, uh, okay. So um, very briefly, I am originally from Genoa, uh, a city in the, on the northwest coast of Italy. And I began working on Italian Holocaust literature almost 10 years ago during my studies at the University of Turin, where I completed my BA and MA. And my interest in uh, the event that I my book um, sparkled when, uh, while I were working on my MA thesis devoted to the Jewish heritage of one of the author I then analyzed in my book. Um, when I joined the University of Cambridge as a PhD student, I started working specifically on 16 October 1943, also known as the Roman Roundup, on a book-length project. And I conducted most of my research in Cambridge and then in Dublin as an IRC postdoctoral fellow. Last year, I refined the manuscript uh, at the University of Manchester, where I was a lecturer. And as you can see, there are uh, many places uh, which had a strong impact on the person that I'm now, and the same goes for people. Um, there are so many scholars who generally um, help me build up my project and refine it. Um, well, they, they actually really help me to grow and thrive uh, as a person and as a scholar. What inspired you to write this book? What message did you hope to convey to your readers? So um, there are at least two reasons. One is historical and the other one is related to cultural memory and cognitive literary studies. So um, I started digging into the Roman Roundup because it was notable in its own right and in relation to the deportation that occurred elsewhere in Italy and Europe. 
1943, one of the most populous Italian Jewish communities was located in Rome. The Roman Roundup took place after Rome had been declared an open city in August 1943, in what was then the southernmost city in the collaborationist Italian Social Republic, uh, also known as the RSI, headed by Mussolini, after the Allies had reached Naples in the late uh, September. And the Roman Roundup was perpetrated in the heart of the Roman Catholic world. So in a city of international as well as national significance. The second reason is that literary, literary texts have emerged as major medium of the production of the memory of 16 October. And yet, very few research projects have been dedicated to literary text. My book uh, look, uh, looks at um, the literature devoted to the Roman Roundup and discusses how literature facilitated the understanding and the recollection of that event. I mostly worked on four texts which I have proven to be the most influential both on a personal and collective terms by merging respectively cognitive literary studies and cultural memory studies. In broader terms, I consider how literature influences individual and collective memory, in other words, reader and society. Thus contributing to the understanding of what shapes human thinking and motivates behavioral change. So I analyze four work um, in relation to the hybrid forms through which each one links history, memory, and literature. And I demonstrate that the four texts analyzed are both key ingredients in the process of constructing national and international me cultural memory of the Roman Roundup and the means for observing it. That is to say, I discussed how these texts have shaped awareness of the Roman Roundup by framing it as the representative event of discrimination and persecution in the Italian territories under Nazi occupation and how these texts have engaged in an enduring dialogue with historians regarding the interpretation of 16 October. What are the primary themes in your book? What story and stories does your book tell? Well, um, my book is divided in two, two parts. Part one consists of two chapters. It examines uh, the triangular relationship between history, memory, and literature, investigates how cultures manage the recollection of their own history and consider the role of literature in cultural memory calling upon the more traditional field of Holocaust studies and notions of cultural memory and cognitive literary studies. Part two is composed of four chapters, each dedicated to one of the four core texts I analyze. On the basis of the theoretical framework provided in part one, the chapters developed uh, detailed textual analysis of the work in question, looking also at their genesis, composition, and position in their respective author's biography and work. They locate their different elements of genre, the structure and style, and the specific relation to the events of 16 October in 1943, in the context, of course, of Italian literary and cultural history. Finally, they explore these four chapter, chapters, the relationship of each text to Italian cultural memory of the Holocaust, or rather the hybrid of its history, memory, and literature as explored in part one. Can you describe the roundup of the Jews of Rome in October, 1943? What specifically happened? Well, <laughs> um, 
it will take me a couple of minutes to properly answer this question. So let's let's take a step back and let me briefly mention a couple of events that happened in the summer of 1943 and which can help us better understand and contextualize the Roman Roundup. So on 25 July 1943, the fascist Ground Council removed Mussolini from power. On 8 September, Marshal Badoglio, Mussolini's successor, proclaimed the armistice between Italy and the Allies. The following day, he left Rome with the King Vittorio Emanuele III. On 10 September, the Nazi occupied the capital. With several divisions already in Italy, they swept through the peninsula to occupy most of the country in just a few days. From allies, they turned into occupiers. On 12 September, an SS parachute unit rescued Mussolini, who had been confined in a mountaintop resort in the Apennines. Three days later, in Berlin, Mussolini announced the construction, the, or better say, the reconstruction of the fascist party, and a week later, the formation of the collaborationist Italian Social Republic, also known as the RSI, headed by himself. This means that from September 1943 to June 1944, the Nazi occupied Rome and surrounded the Vatican. The Gestapo took over a former apartment building in the center of Rome and used it as their headquarters. In the nine months of occupation, Roman citizens lived through a time of deprivation, hunger and oppression, and of resistance, torture, imprisonment and death. Well, during the, Nazi, during the Nazi occupation, the Jewish community took no official precaution to protect themselves from the Nazi occupiers. They did not want to attract attention to themselves. But Israel Zolli, the rabbi of Rome, was one of the very few public figures who, from September 1943, informally advised the closure of the synagogue destruction of the files of the members of the community and provision of subsidies to the poorest. He left his apartment and went into hiding and advised Jews to leave their homes and hide. But most of them remained in their homes. Well, the preparation for deportation of 1618 October probably began earlier in uh, the month of, of October. The organization was supervised by Theodore Danneke, an SS captain who had previously carried out deportation from Bulgaria, Greece, Holland, Belgium, Holland, and had co-directed the Veldiva Roundup in Paris on 16 and 17 July 1942. He arrived in Rome at the beginning of October with a letter ordering the deportation of the Roman Jews and signed by Heinrich Müller, at the time chief of the Gestapo. And Danica did not stay in the Gestapo headquarter in the center of Rome, but three kilometers away. And a few days later, 365 SS troops arrived in Rome. They were divided in two groups and Rome itself into 26 areas. During the roundup on 16 October, each group was in charge of one area and Italian police officers were excluded. According to the deposition Kapler made under interrogation in August 1947, Danica informed him in the late evening of 15 October that the roundup would take place the next day. He told him that Italian police officers could not be trusted and would not be used. Well, 
On 15 October in the evening, a Jewish woman ran up and down the street of the former ghetto, the neighborhood that has been recalled as the ghetto, screaming that 200 families would be deported the next day. No one paid any attention to her. During the night, there were gunshots near the ghetto. They were not linked to the roundup, but there are testimonies that people were scared and remained at home longer than usual that morning. At around 4 a.m., a few people left their home and queued for the weekly cigarette ration outside the tobacconist, which was not open yet. They were unaware of the roundup when it started. And the roundup per se started on Saturday 16 at 5.30 a.m. The SS started to arrest Jews around Rome. They broke into apartments, cut telephone wires, and handed residents written instruction in Italian and German. The residents had 20 minutes to pack food, blankets, money, jewelry, and to lock the door. According to Kapler's deposition, the roundup ended at two o'clock in the afternoon. By the beginning of 16 October, 1,259 people had been gathered in a temporary detention center close to the Vatican. On 17 October, before dawn, 252 people were set free. They were from mixed marriages, so children, one of whose parents was an Italian Catholic, Catholic arrested by mistakes, and Jewish citizens of countries where deportation were not occurring. Among them, some Jews pretended to be Catholic evacuees from the Allied bombing of San Lorenzo neighborhood on 19 July 1943, and they survived. The rest of the people captured on 16 October stayed in, the temp in that temporary detention center one more night. They were obliged to give any money and jewelry they possessed to pay for the upkeep of children and the elderly in the camp. And much of this money and jewelry ended up in SS pockets. On 18 October in the morning, 1,015 people were taken by truck to Stazione Tiburtina, where they were put into 28 cattle trucks. In each cattle truck, there were roughly 40 people. A Jewish woman, Costanza Calò Sermoneta, came to the railway station and persuaded some of the SS officers to let her own to the cattle truck which held her husband and children. There were thus 1,016 people on the train, which left at 2 p.m. The train arrived at Auschwitz after a journey of five days, during which seven people died. 16 people returned to Rome after the end of the war. Can you describe the plight of the Jews of Rome during the Holocaust? What, if anything, was unique about Roman Jews' experiences vis-a-vis -vis Jews elsewhere in Italy? So, um, well, before 16 October, to be more precise, at the end of September, SS officer broke into the Jewish community buildings where they took archival documents, including the list that recorded the addresses of Roman Jews. And yet, most of the Jews remained in their homes and did not try to hide. Scholars suggest that there were two main factors behind this choice. First, not all families, especially those living in the ghetto, could afford to leave their homes or find refuge elsewhere as their resources had been greatly diminished after the Russia laws of 1938 had restricted their ability to work and earn money. So without help or collaboration, it was difficult to hide children and the old. But there was also a second reason. The majority 
of them did not believe that there would be deportations from Rome. They felt that the proximity of the Pope gave them protection. They were wrong, clearly. Needless to say, the role of the Pope, Pius XII, and of the Church on and after 16 October is particularly and intensely debated. Some historians believe that the Pope intervened to attempt to stop the deportation from Rome, and others do not. Well, in terms of literature, there are poignant examples. Here is a quite powerful image from one of the book, one of the books I analyzed. Originally published in 1997, it was translated into English in 2000 with the title First Words. The passage I'm about to quote will provide you with a glance of the understanding of the Pope's silence up until the late 90s, and I'm quoting. Nobody summons the courage to stop that. Nobody stop the trucks that drive away loaded with men and women and children awakened so horribly from their sleep. Pius XII does not appear white and solemn at the Trastevere station to stand on the trucks in front of the convoy and block its departure. Pius XII stays closed behind the windows of his room where the canaries Hansel and Gretel take off into the air on their brief flight. I don't know about you, but I'm very busy and I don't have a lot of time to cook. That's why I subscribe to Factor. Eating better is easy with Factor's delicious, ready-to-eat meals. Every fresh, never-frozen meal is chef-crafted, dietitian-approved, and ready to go in just two minutes. You'll have over 35 different options to choose from every week, including Calorie Smart, Protein Plus, and Keto. These are two-minute meals. Factor meals are ready to eat in heat, so there's no prepping, cooking, or cleanup needed. They're flexible for your schedule. Get as much or as little as you need by choosing your meals every week. Factor is the perfect solution if you're looking for fast premium options with no cooking required. Sign up and save. We've done the math, and this is important. Factor is less expensive than takeout, and every meal is dietitian approved to be nutritious and delicious. Head to factormeals.com slash NBN50 and use code NBN50 to get 50% off. That's code NBN50 at factormeals.com slash nbn50 to get 50% off. To what extent were Jews living in Italy integrated into society before the advent of Mussolini? How did this change in 1938? So in 1938, Jews counted for approximately 0.1% of the population and constituted generally uh, a urban middle class that was highly integrated into society. Also, a good number of Italian Jews were fervent fascists. Well, after a social cultural campaign of racial exclusion and discrimination, the Italian racial laws promulgated in 1938 effectively started to segregate the Italian Jewish population. This was the beginning of the officially organized disenfranchisement and discrimination of Italian Jews and Jews in Italy. The official persecution of Jews began in September 1943, when Italy signed the armistice with the Allies and in a couple of days the Nazi occupied the Italian peninsula and contributed to the formation of the RSI. Well, the first history book about the discrimination against and the persecution of Italian Jews before and after the promulgation of the Russia laws was published in 1961. It was The Jews in Fascist Italy by Renzo de Felice. And that book had been commissioned by the Jewish community in Rome and published by a leading publisher in Italy, Einaudi. Until the earlier 2000, scholars following Renzo de Felice's legacy largely accepted the notion that Jews in Italy were fully integrated with discrimination only beginning after the promulgation of the Russian laws in 1938. Well, 
it's more than 20 years now that historians have been challenging this view, highlighting instead that the Russia laws marked the apex of a long-lasting Italian anti-Semitism. What new insights are presented in your study regarding the relationship between history, memory, and literature? Well, uh, I, uh, well I have always found the dynamic interplay between history, memory, and literature intriguing, and even more so when I started delving into the Roman Roundup. The relationship between history and memory has changed in many ways over the past century. So from being seen as unreliable and distorting sources, individual memories have become the partners of historiography, documents in the reconstruction of the recent past. This kinship deepens and evolves with the inclusion of literature as a third element especially after the impact of the Holocaust. The transmission of memory through literature has become an authoritative medium for the representation of the past. And in my book, I explore how literature plays a role in shaping individual and collective memory, influencing both readers and society. And such analyses foster our understanding of the factors influencing human thoughts, and prompts reflections on questions such as why and how do we remember, why do we forgot, forget, and why and how do we omit. Now, despite the differences in terms of genre, personal experience, and combination of historical sources and personal memories, the four authors I worked on share recurring themes in their treatment of the Roman Roundup and develop similar literary strategies and techniques. They combine historic facts and personal stories in narrative forms which transmit the past in and through lived experience. They use a range of techniques such as elaborate first-person narratives, detailed description of everyday life, and present tense voice to convey embodied and seemingly immediate experiences. They address readers also in intimate ways, which is typical of direct, personal and informal communication. These and other strategies involve readers in their stories and create collective affective bonds within and across generation. In this sense, by combining notion of cultural memory studies and cognitive literary studies, I showed that these texts reactivate and re-embody distant individual and social memory, represent them in familiar forms of mediation and aesthetic expression, and create a sense of shared social space and historical time in readers, thus facilitating their understanding and recollection of the Roman Roundup, and more generally, of the past. Can you say something as well about individual, collective, and cultural memory? How do these show up in your study? How do they show up in the works you address? What is the relationship between these different forms of memory and history on the one side and literature on the other? Uh, right. Uh, these are very, very good questions. Uh, uh, a little bit complicated, though. So um, I think I will give you an example. Um, so my perception or your perception of an event is undoubtedly influenced by the perception of other people attending that very same event. Our memory of that event will be consciously or unconsciously conditioned by what the rest of the participant have perceived, the discussion that have arisen from it and the consideration of other participants. So indeed, we are sharing a space and a time. Similarly, others will also be influenced when our position is shared. This means that our individual perception and memory are influenced by the external world. And in turn, our individual perception and memory 
influence that same external world. This is the relationship between individual and collective memory, where collective memory refers to the various memories of individuals belonging to a more or less cohesive and extensive group of people that mutually influence each other. Then, if one of us were to rework their perceptions and memories of that event in a newspaper article or a post on a social network, for example, then our message could reach out a numerically larger audience and generate interest from user of the media used, potentially impacting, impacting their upcoming newspaper articles or post. This is because our message our article is a product of the cultural memory of the event narrated. And thus, we arrive at the last term. By cultural memory, we mean the reworking of our memory, remembering that it influences and it is influenced by external factors through media. Tools that can be a newspaper article, of course, or a post or a so on a social network, or clearly a literary text, a theatrical work, a television series, a film, a documentary, and etc. By cultural memory, we mean artistic and non-artistic reworking that influence a broader group than the one initially involved. Can you tell us about each of the texts that you examine in the study? Can you say a little bit about each of these works? What is it that particularly speaks to you in each of them? Right. Um, so the, the first one uh, of these texts is a chronicle narrative essay published in a book form in 1945. It is entitled, literally, 16 October 1943. It's by Giacomo de Benedetti. This was the first detailed account to be published about the Roman Roundup. This text partic particularly fascinated me for the representation of the events through two notions of time, one historical or linear, the other biblical or cyclical. De Benedetti situates um, the Roman Roundup within the historical timeline of occupied Rome, but at the very same time represented alongside and in light of the history of Jews as narrated in the Bible. The second is a historical novel published in 1974. It was a huge bestseller. I'm referring to history, a novel, uh, with the capital H by Elsa Morante. And I'm pretty sure that from the title only, you can grasp the intricate relationship between facts and fiction, history and novel. Morante paid a vast canvas of ordinary life in and around the Second World War in Rome. She described the war in physical, sensorial, and emotional terms that are common to humankind, thus depicting the heterogeneity and complexity of historical events from engaging an intimate and fr from engaging an intimate perspectives. The third is an autobiographical novel essay published in 1997. Its title is First words, a childhood in fascist Italy. And well, to be completely fair, the English translation of the original title, that is La Parola Ebreo, so literally the word Jew, does not really provide the audience with a preliminary understanding of the theme discussed by the author, who is Rosetta Loi. Loi reports on uh, 
how the perception of the Jews in Italy changed during the period of fascism and how the Russia laws of 1938 and after took root in Italian society. She reasons on the collective responsibility of the Pope, the, the church and the Italians. So in a way or another, she reflects upon what we consider now implicated subjects and bystanders. And lastly, the fourth is a work of popular history published in 2013 by the historian Anna Foa. As the title Portico d'Ottavia 13 suggests, Foa represents, uh, or better, Foa representation of 16 October and of the past more broadly, is confined to one building, which stands on the edge of the former ghetto, in Via del Portico d'Ottavia 13. What I appreciate the most about this book is that Foa's writing is powerfully commemorative. The names and the places that appear in the book are the element that distinguish Foa's representation of 16 October from the text I examined. So Foa makes a monument of the building and of the book in which the name of its residents are engraved. The texts that you study in this work cover quite an arc of time in terms of the dates of their publications. To what extent is this important and significant how does it shape the form of the different works? Uh, well, uh, it's crucial. So uh, 16 October 1943 by Giacomo de Benedetti appeared for the very first time in December 1944 in the Roman monthly journal Mercurio. The issue of that journal um, was highly significant because it was published while Italy was still at war, albeit Rome had been liberated. And it was entirely dedicated to the resistance. This issue was a channel of transmission to the north of Italy, which was still under the Nazi occupation. So in this sense, the Benedetti's text is also to be read as a means by which the author was able to pass personal information about his situation to his loved ones who were in the north, because he was originally from the north of Italy. So in the text, he includes private messages which are disguised in the polyphonic description of the roundup. He only briefly mentioned that he was in Rome when the roundup occurred, and back again in July. But by publishing the text, he demonstrates that he was back in Rome in December, and that time he was out of danger. As for the second book, so as for Morante, her intention to bear witness and to make history accessible and to awaken the conscience of people influenced the way she built up uh, her historical novel, and she launched, actually, her book. So first, the title of each chapter is the year in which the plot unfolds, and each chapter is preceded by a chronicle of historical information in which the major events of the year in question is presented. These presentations form an integral paratext of the body of the novel. And although typographically limited to a few pages before each chapter, they are fluidly dialogic. So historical events shapes and direct the plot. Within these historical frames, as in historical records, human beings are an indistinct mass, but in the fiction, by contrast, the focus is narrowed down to the individual and events are narrated through the mediation and perspective of ordinary characters, characters who are overwhelmed by the flow of history, but at the same time constitute history itself. This book 
was published by Enaudi, a leading publisher in Italy, in its cheap paperback series for 2,000 lire. That was a very low price. And the timing of the novel's release was particularly favorable. It arrived in bookshops just before the Italian summer vacation, traditionally a period during which more books are sold and currently popular titles are advertised and reviewed in media. A few weeks before the novel appearance, the publisher mounted an extensive advertisement campaign in the mass media to announce it. It was an enormous success. The third book, so Loy's book, it is an hybrid autobiographical memoir that shares aspects of postmodern cultural forms prevalent in that period, so in the late 90s. Loy makes a textual collage. She represents fragmented images of the Holocaust in Italy through the use of historical data, archival sources, and personal testimonies. Finally, Foa's book, it's quite interesting again, because Portico d'Ottavio 13, as I mentioned, is a book of popular history in which historical understanding comes from the account of individual experiences and vividly narrated life stories. She said that she had re-evaluated re her methods of historical research and of writing history book because she sees individual and collective memories as a central part of history and the boundaries between private and public spheres as blurred. So Foa generally believes in the pedagogical value of literary re-elaboration of private stories for the transmission of historical knowledge and in the perception and understanding of the public sphere through the perception and understanding of the private. Such an approach was in line with that of other historians in Europe and in the US who started publishing popular and all personalized history about the Holocaust. And I'm thinking about Ottodov Kulka or Omer Bartov, for, for instance. Three of the texts that you examine in the book are written by women. And one, a foundational one, is by a male author. In what ways does gender matter in terms of the writing? Uh, well, the question of gender is embedded in the representation of the past. I mean, I don't look at the question of gender in terms of sexual identity of the author. I do not consider it in terms of the author attempt at discussing the absent or the fragmentary presence of women from the historical record of the Roman Roundup, nor in terms of their attempt at affirming or retracing the complex and continued women's presence in and interaction with the social cultural sphere of Rome under the occupation. Rather, I am interested in discussing the approach of De Benedetti, Morante, Loi and Foa to the historical data available at the time of their writing. I offer a re uh, well, I offer a reading, let's say, of their works dedicated to 16 October in relation to some of the notion explored by new historicist and new feminist perspectives, which suggest a re-evaluation of both the methods of historical research and the writing of and about history at the beginning of the 90s in Italy. So um, I look at the Benedetti's Morantes, Lois, and Foas text more or less similar ways of re-elaborating personal testimonies, exploring ego documents, and adapting sources, as well as in their willingness to bring 16 October to a critical communal awareness by elevating the private, the silenced, and the neglected to public consciousness, to collective memory. How important are bodily, sensory, and emotional descriptions in the works you have analyzed and in 
what ways does it influence the different guises that we that we see these descriptions in and that we absorb and interpret these descriptions? So, uh, well, body and emotions are two keywords in my textual analysis, let's say. In the text, I analyzed um, historical facts and personal stories are re-elaborated in narrative forms which transmit the past in and through lived experience. This means that there are bodily, emotional, and sensorial description of the roundup. And this is quite important in terms of the sense of identification they trigger between characters and readers in terms of the process of recollection. Let me better explain. Literature has aesthetic and effective dimensions which help reader remember the events they have read about. The body is a universal signifier, shared and recognized by all, bodily sign, perception, markers of suffering, as well as sensorial description are universally intelligible and help readers to get better involved in the story and remember it. And the same happens with emotions. Although emotional Evaluations of readers change according to the culture or society in which they live, there exists a basic emotional repertoire that anyone from any culture is capable of experiencing. This fact allows literature to bridge both spatial and temporal frontiers to trigger readers' memory while reading historical facts. How are the emotions of fear and anxiety depicted in the works that you examine? Oh, well, um, in the text I analyzed, the description of uh, the arrest of 16, on 16 October is most of the time polyphonic. And yet individual voices to maintain the metaphor are perceived in uh, very powerful descriptions. I will give you an example. So as if in a cinematic long shot, the Benedetti, so the first who represented the Roman roundup in literary terms, move around the rest on 16 October. He writes, and I'm, I'm quoting, the captured family are struggling single file down the middle of the street. SS troopers at the head and the tail of each little band are guarding them, keeping them more or less in line, prodding them on with the butts of their machine guns, although no one is resisting with anything more than tears, moans, cries for mercy, confused questions. The Benedetti and zoom in on this oral scene and reveals that it is made up of a collage of individuals' feelings and perceptions. He briefly depicts the physical and emotional traits of some of the Jews waiting to be loaded into the cattle trucks and brought to the temporary detention center that I mentioned to you at the beginning of this podcast. Well, he depicts highly suggestive vignettes of hopelessness and fear. He depicts frightened children and powerless father, the old and the sick, a young mother with an infant in her arms. And I'm quoting, the children search their parents' eyes for reassurance, comfort the latter can no longer give. Some of them kiss their children, and there are fathers who keep their hands on their child's head. A woman with a nursing child in her arms open her blouse and take out a breast and press it to demonstrate it to a soldier that there is no longer any milk for her child. But he pokes his machine gun into her side to get her walk. So these intimate descriptions as a contrast to the bare facts of historical events of the roundup encourage the readers to become involved in what they read, to recognize and identify with characters, and so 
memorize the facts of the event in a more personal and deeply felt way. The emotional repertoire shared by the readers and characters reached the spatial and temporal gaps between them. The reader read the fear, the anguish, the hopelessness of the Benedetti's characters, immerse themselves in these emotions and momentarily blur the distinction between self and other. In your book, you speak often of the narrating eye and the narrated eye. What do these terms mean and signify? Can you elaborate? So uh, the narrating and the narrated eyes are typical of autobiographical writings. The narrating eye is the literary construction of the adult author reflects on their life. The narrated eye is who is remembered. So let me give you an example. First words by Rosetta Loi narrates personal family and public memories of the years between 1936-1943 in Rome. And it describes the life of the narrated I, the child Rosetta, during the war and her relationship with Jews who lived in the building on Via Flaminia, where she also lives. The plot, in general, um, revolves around the life of the young Rosetta. But the narrating I is the literary construction of the adult Loi. And the narrating eye reflects on her own childhood. And she frequently intervenes in the narrative so that her readers add another point of view to the child's perception of the war that is one of the adult who knows the historical events of that time and later comments on that. What were the most rewarding aspects of your research project for you? What were the most surprising aspects of your research project for you? What were the most challenging aspects of your research project for you? Oh, well, the, the, the concluding chapter of my book offer an overview of the growth and wealth of works created for cinema, television and theater about the Roman Roundup and produced over the last 20 years. But offering a fair overview of cinema, television, and theater narratives of the last 20 years presented a considerable challenge, to be honest. This um, was perhaps the most demanding aspect of my research. And yet it was so rewarding because I managed to show direct and indirect intertextual references to the four texts analyzed in the majority of the 21st century screen and stage adaptation. This underscores once more the foundational and leading role that these texts have played in shaping the Italian cultural memory of the Roman Roundup and of the Holocaust more generally in Italy. And I can now confirm that the trajectory of the memory of the Roman Roundup is continuously, continually growing, thus contributing to the deeper perspective of the Holocaust at national, supranational and transnational level. In light of the ascent to power in Italy of Giorgia Meloni, what do you feel that the future holds for the representation of the Holocaust in Italy, even in an Italian context? Little was written about the Roman Roundup until the 2000s. Why do you feel that the long silence in this regard manifested? What do you think of this long silence? What position does the Roman Roundup occupy now in terms of Italian culture and memory? Well, um, in the month following October 1943, there was little knowledge of what had happened in Rome. In general, rapid political and social change in post-war Italy made the process of discovery and remembrance of the Holocaust limited and difficult. A widespread indifference lasted until the beginning of the 60s, 
when the trial of Adolf Heichmann aroused interest in the persecution, deportation, murder of Jews in Italy and in Europe more broadly. In the new democratic Republican Italy, persecution, deportation and murder were presented and perceived as crimes solely committed by Nazis. Such a narrative was in line with the fostering of two foundational myths. The myth of the resistance, so Italians broadly speaking, speaking resisted fascism and the Nazi occupation, and of Italian good people, in comparison with the brutality and violence associated with the Nazi troops. And it was only in the 80s when new form of anti-Semitism emerged and increased attention was given to the Russia laws of 1938, that the aforementioned prevailing perceptions of the persecution and deportation of Jews in Italy was contested. Attention started to be paid to the involvement of the Italian first in the process of discrimination, which dated back between October 1938 and September 1943, and then in that of persecution from October 1943 to April 1945. In the 2000s, scholars began to examine and reconstruct the phase of the Roman Roundup from a new perspective. And that is the very first time that happened. In 2006, the first historiographical volume entirely dedicated to the Roman Roundup and the event that preceded it was published. And for the 70th anniversary of the Roman Roundup, so in 2013, the first exhibition was held at the Complesso Vittoriano in Rome. And it was curated by Marcello Pezzetti, a historian who in the same year edited a book of documents, pictures, and drawings from that very exhibition. And the book includes official messages to and from Germany, personal letters, family, photographs, and illustration of the roundup by Aldo Gai, a Jew who managed to um, manage some sketches uh, while SS officers were in the ghetto. And those are the only images left of the roundup. Well, today, uh, the Roman Roundup embodies the persecution of Jews in Italy between 1943-1945. After all, it was indeed the largest single Roundup and deportation of Jews from Italy. For the 80th anniversary of the Roman Roundup, uh, so in 2023, countless heterogeneous and outreach events have been organized so as to sensitize the general public to discrimination and persecution. Theater performances, film screenings, readings, talks, conferences, walk around the places of deportation. And I was lucky enough to have been invited to one of those events, which included the, the presentation of my book in a form of a dialogue with two historians and semi-stage readings of the four texts I analyze alternated with piano solos. And well, needless to say, uh, the socio-political background influences the activities and the process of recollection of the past. But um, I don't feel that this is the appropriate time or place to discuss the quite worrying, I think, presence of the far-right party uh, currently in government in Italy with Giorgio Meloni. Outside of Italy, there remains significant ignorance about the Roman Roundup. Why do you think this is the case? Why do you feel that English-speaking readers, English-speaking countries, and students of the history of World War II outside of Italy are not knowledgeable enough about what happened? Well, uh... I had an interesting conversation once uh, with this person from the US who was attending the presentation of my book in Dublin. Um, he said that he was fascinated by my work because it sheds light upon the periphery of the Holocaust. And this is not the first time I heard this. I mean, this is not the first time that someone who also happened to be in the field of Holocaust studies has told me that the history 
of discrimination and persecution in Italy is peripheral. So surely the number of deported people in Italy is comparable to those in Germany and Poland, for instance. But the process of persecution in Italy and deportation from Italy are quite interesting. So think about the presence of the Vatican and are to be considered in relation to the process of discrimination. Uh, well, let's say that I wish for a better, or perhaps I should say multifaceted understanding of the Holocaust. Uh, the Holocaust goes beyond the study and the representation of the experience of extermination in concentration camps. We should avoid commonplace such as crystallized and limited understanding and portraits of victims and perpetrators. I always tend to, to, to imagine the Holocaust as a prism. If we observe it from afar, we have a general supranational perception of it. If we get it closer, we recognize different facets, different national perspectives on it. Countries have a particular history to recollect, come to terms with, and represent. Each one influences and it is influenced by the others. Through fluid and migratory ways, national histories and perspectives of the Holocaust cross national boundaries, cultural borders, the facets of the prisms. Now, in my book, I drew closer to one facet of the prism to Italy, to Rome, to one day in October during the Nazi occupation of 1943-1945, to the largest single roundup and deportation of Jews from Italy. And I hope that my work, above all considering that it is in English, will eventually provide a further and deeper understanding of what we know about the Holocaust. As we bring today's dialogue to a close, I'd like to let you know how much it has meant to me to have this time with you and how eloquent and erudite your responses have been throughout the course of our conversation. I'm so grateful and I appreciate all the wisdom you shared with us. Thank you, Ari. Thank you so much. I'm so pleased to have had the time to, to talk through about my book with you. If you don't mind me asking, what have you been working on next? as your subsequent projects what ah, well now yeah well thank you for for your interest uh so while conducting my research on 16 october i encountered texts by a jewish author who evaded arrest and deportation by going into hiding from that moment onward i kept digging and expanded my area of inquiry from rome to the italian peninsula so there is a growing number of studies devoted to historical account of European Jews who escaped the Holocaust by living out of sites or under false document. But at the moment, no study has provided a systematic consideration or comprehensive analysis of the literary text reporting on the experience of hiding. This is what I'm doing, starting from the Italian context, which is a particularly interesting and constructive starting point for such an inquiry, because Italy counts the highest percentage, 81% of Jews who survived by going into hiding during the Nazi occupation of Europe. So by working on texts published from 1945 up to present day, I have now built a corpus of approximately 35 texts of different genres which report life in hiding in occupied Italy. From the analysis of this corpus, I set up what I call the literature of hiding, a new category of Holocaust literature through which I further discuss the field of Holocaust studies by blurring the boundaries of Holocaust literature and by blurring the physiognomy of what has been considered so far as a Holocaust survivor. And if you don't mind, I think I would like to stop this conversation with three questions sure. that um, 
could actually raise the interest of the audience. So the first one is, what is a Holocaust text? Who is a Holocaust survivor? And third, why are persecuted people who avoided deportation hardly considered Holocaust survivors? So thank you very much for, well, having me here, for taking the time to organize it and to listening to our conversation. Thank you. You deserve enormous praise for this masterpiece of scholarship and also for the sensitive and detailed responses you provided throughout the course of our dialogue together. Thank you. Thank you so much. As we end our dialogue today, I'm your host on the New Books in History podcast, Ari Barbalat. Today, I've been delighted to engage in a dialogue with Mara Yozi regarding her newly published book, Rome, 16 October 1943, History, Memory, Literature, published in Cambridge, United Kingdom by Legenda 2023. Dr. Mara Yozi is an FWO junior postdoctoral fellow at Ghent University. Thank you. I was so honored. Thank you so much, Harry. I was honored likewise. Thank you. It is Ryan here, and I have a question for you. What do you do when you win? Like, are you a fist pumper, a woohooer, a hand clapper, a high fiver? I kind of like the high five, but if you want to hone in on those winning moves, check out Chumba Casino. At chumbacasino.com, choose from hundreds of social casino style games for your chance to redeem serious cash prizes. There are new game releases weekly, plus free daily bonuses. So don't wait. Start having the most fun ever at chumbacasino.com. No purchase necessary. DTW, void, we're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions 18 plus.